Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Romans? Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 1. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with the, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteousness, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Thank you, Laura. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans, and this is kind of what we do if you're new with us. Uh, Just within our church, we take a book of the Bible and just kind of march our way through it, taking it verse by verse as we make our way through that particular book of the Bible. And so we've been going through the book of Romans over the last few weeks, and we come to chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 this morning. And as we dig into this chapter this morning or this passage this morning, I want you to think about this question. I want us to think about this question together. Do you ever look at just the moral landscape of the country and culture in which we live and wonder how in the world we got here? Like, like do, you ever, do you ever look at just where we are morally speaking as a, as a country and culture? So just murder, like just turn on the TV. Like the whole idea of truth, or even knowing what's true, even knowing if somebody is speaking truth, like that's that's ancient. Like like the whole idea of truth is is hard to even come by. 
today. It's even hard to have like a civil conversation with anybody today about anything without people being mad and their conversation and and speech being filled with hate and slander and gossip and lies. If you think about God's design for things like gender and sexuality and marriage and how all that's been twisted and distorted, if you think about life and how life isn't valued much anymore, if you think about abortion and how rampant abortion is, if you think about the country in which we live and how it glorifies and even normalizes so many things that that God says are sinful and destructive, like sexual immorality and fornication and adultery and just fill in the blank. Like, like how did we get here? Like, why, why are things the way they are within our culture and within our country today? Not only that, but why are they even getting worse and worse and worse and, and worse? And so a lot of answers can be given, and a lot of answers are given within the world in which we live. Some will say it's because of the educational system. Like, if we just reform the educational system and get everybody a proper education, then everything will be fine. Some would say it's the economic system, and it has to do with this great disparity that exists within our country between the haves and the have-nots. Some would say it's the political system, and we just need to vote in new politicians and get rid of the ones that are there, and, and that will change everything. So then why are we where we are, morally speaking, within the country in which we live? That's the question that this passage that we're about to look in this morning is going to answer. And I'll be honest with you, the answer that this passage is going to give, it's terrifying. Like literally. It's, it's jarring. It's, it's, it's alarming. And the reason it's so jarring and terrifying is because the answer that this passage has to give in regards to why we are where we are, morally speaking, within our country, it has to do with God's wrath. Like this passage is going is to make this connection that partly where we are in this country partly has to do with the fact that God is revealing his wrath against those who have ignored and rejected him. Like that's the connection that this passage is going to make between, between what Paul's describing within this passage and where we are morally speaking within our country today. That we are where we are because God's pouring out his just wrath against those who've ignored him and rejected him and sought to replace him. That's the whole point of this passage this morning. So then I'll, I'll just, you probably already know this because the Lord just read this passage, but I'll just acknowledge kind of the, the elephant in the room. This isn't like the feel-good passage of the year. Like we're going to get into this passage and you're going to think, oh, we're back in Hosea again, right? Like God's wrath week after week after week after, after week. But that's what this passage is, is all about. Like it begins in verse 18 by talking about the reality of God's wrath. 
And then in verses, the end of verse 18 through, through verse 23, then it's going to explain the reasons for God's wrath and why God is pouring out His wrath and revealing His wrath. And then in verses 24 through 32, then it's going to explain the revelation of God's wrath against those who are rejected. Prayer for us, this is this. My prayer is that this passage would, would first of all give us a proper understanding and proper perspective when it comes to why we are where we are, morally speaking, within this country and culture in which we live. Secondly, though, once we see why we are where we are, secondly, my, my prayer is that it would give us a, a better understanding then of how to fix things. Because if you don't understand why we are where we are, then all the solutions that are offered in terms of how to fix it are going to be off base, misplaced. You have to first understand why we are where we are and why we're in the mess that we're in before you can figure out the solution in terms of how to fix it. And so then my prayer is that as we go through this passage that we would be able to gain understanding in terms of those two things, why we are where we are and therefore how to fix it. So let's begin by first looking at, and you see this on your hand out there, the, the reality of God's wrath. We see this at the very beginning. Look at verse 18 with me. Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So then remember what we looked at last week. And Paul, in verse 18 here, Paul's continuing his flow of thought that he left off with in verses 16 and, and 17. And so if you remember last week in verses 16 and 17, Paul talks about how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. If you remember how we define what the righteousness of God is, that the righteousness of God in, in verse 17 is specifically a reference to the justice of God, the impartiality of God, of how God shows no distinction between Jews and, and Gentiles and how he treats both groups equally. And so then in verse 18 then, he's going to explain the negative side then of God's righteousness meaning the negative side of God's impartiality, God's justice, the negative side of the fact that God shows no distinction between Jew or Gentile, these two ethnic groups. And the negative side of God's righteousness or impartiality or justice is, is this. You can see it on your hand out there. Since God is just and impartial, His wrath is revealed against all ungodly and unrighteous people. Meaning it doesn't matter what ethnic group you're a part of or anything else. Like God makes no distinction that both Jews and Gentiles stand guilty under the condemnation and under the wrath of God. That's why then, look at verse 18 again. He says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He doesn't say the wrath of God is revealed against ungodly and unrighteous Jews. He doesn't say that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodly and unrighteous Gentiles. He says that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Meaning all of, not talking about just men, gender. Meaning all of, all, you don't get a pass, women. He, he means all, all, of, all of man, all of humanity, all of, all of mankind. He's including everyone. Everyone is guilty. Everyone is condemned in God's sight. No one gets a pass. It doesn't matter 
What, what, whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or brown, it doesn't matter. He shows no distinction when it comes to his wrath. Apart from Christ, everyone is under the righteous indignation and the just judgment of God because of our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, because of our sin and our rebellion against Him. And again, that's what, God, that's what this whole idea of God's wrath means. Sin. He, he doesn't wink and just and righteous. Then he, is in, he intensely and furiously hates sin. And His wrath burns with righteous indignation and anger against ungodly, everyone who is ungodly and unrighteous and who commits and is rebellion against him. Like without, without distinction, everyone. So, so that's the first reality of God's wrath. The second reality then is this. And I'll be honest with you, this second reality is even more jarring than the first. The second reality is this, God's wrath is a present reality. God's wrath is a present reality. In other words, when we normally think about God's wrath, when we normally sing about God's wrath, when we normally preach about God's wrath, we normally think of something that's to come in the future. We normally think it's something that's going to happen in the future. We think of the day of judgment in which Jesus returns and, and God pours out his just judgment finally and completely upon those who have rejected Jesus and not turned to him by faith. So that's true. So please don't misunderstand me here. That day is, is coming. Like there's a terrifying day that's coming in which God's wrath is going to be poured out finally and completely and fully upon all those who have not received and, and trusted in Jesus by, by faith. However, that's not what verse 18 is referring to. Verse 18 is not referring to a future day in which God pours out his wrath on that last and final day of judgment. Instead, it's referring to something in the present. It's referring to something that's happening in the here and now. In other words, just wrap your mind around this. Right now, presently, God is revealing his wrath. God is pouring out his wrath in the present. And one of the reasons we know that is because that, that verb there, revealed, it's, it's in the present tense. It's not something that's happening in the future. It's something that God is doing right now in the present. His wrath is being revealed right now in, in the present. Which, think about that, right? That's weighty. Like, here we are going about our everyday lives, going to the store, coming to, the, coming to church, just going to work on Monday morning just go watching TV, and in the midst of just our normal everyday life, God's wrath is being revealed. Like we're just going on with life as normal. And his wrath is being poured out. And just feel the, the weight of that. That's, that's huge. Essentially causes two questions to ask. The first question is why, and the second question is how. So first question, why? 
Like, if that's true, then, then why is that happening? Why is God revealing his wrath in the present? Why? And the second question is how? Like, how is God revealing? How is God pouring out his wrath in the present? Meaning, what does it look like? Well, thankfully, those are the two questions that Paul's going to answer in the rest of this passage. That he's first going to answer the question of why in verses 18 through 23 and and give reasons for why God is pouring out his wrath in the present. And then in verses 24 through 32, he's going to explain how. And he's going to show us how God is manifesting or pouring out or revealing his wrath in the present. So first we're going to look at the, 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 the why question or the reasons for God's wrath. And the first reason is this. You can see it on your hand out there. It's because ungodly and unrighteous people suppress the truth that they're... Paul goes on to say, suppress the truth. Well, he tells us what he tells us in verse 19. Here's the truth that they suppress, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So that right there is the truth that they're suppressing. They're they're suppressing the truth about God. Namely, that there is a God. Namely, that God exists. And in doing so, Paul says, they're without excuse. And the reason that they're without excuse is because God has made it plain He's made it plain to them. He's made it clear to them that he exists. And the way that he's done that is through his creation and and the world that he's made. In other words, as we look at the world in which God has made, as we look at all the stars and the mountains and the sea and the ocean and everything else within it, it's obvious and it's evident that there's a divine power and a divinity behind it all who, who made it all. And because of that then, no one has any excuse whatsoever for not believing that there is a God and believing that God exists. Because through his creation, he's made it plain to everybody that he does exist. Some, though, have just suppressed this truth and just tried to act like it's not real and to act like it's not true and to act like he doesn't really exist. But the reality, he's made it plain. They just suppressed it. And so they're without excuse. Which leads to the second reason God is revealing his wrath. You see this on your hand out. It's because ungodly and unrighteous people don't honor God or give thanks to him. So what we see, look at verse 21. Paul goes on to say this in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to God. So again, they, 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 even though they're suppressing that truth, they know that there is a God. They know that. Everybody knows that. There's really no such thing as a, as a true atheist. Everybody knows that there's a God. Some just suppress that truth. And he's saying even though they know God, even though they, they know there's a God, because he's made it plain through creation, they suppress it and act like there's He doesn't exist. And because of that, then they don't honor him and they don't give thanks to him. Which then leads to the third and final reason. 
for why God's revealing his wrath. And it's because of this. It's because ungodly and unrighteous men, people, other, worship other gods instead of the one true God. It's what we see in the rest of verse 21 there. Look there with me. He says, but, do you see the contrast there with the word but? Meaning instead of acknowledging that there is a God, instead of honoring him and giving thanks to him as God, here's what they did instead. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's what they did in their foolishness. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, that's code language for they worshipped idols. They worshipped these little statues of birds and animals and humans and all these little creeping things. And in doing so, Paul says that they're acting like fools. He says that what they're doing there is, is foolish. And so think about that for a minute, right? Think, think about how foolish this would have been. Like over here on one hand, you have what Paul describes as the glory, powerful, all, meaning he doesn't wither, all powerful, all glorious God, the creator of all things, who doesn't wither or die or pass away. And you wake up one morning and you think, huh, I, th- I think I'll make a trade. I'm going to exchange that for what Paul describes as images, meaning it's not even the real thing, like God's the real thing. They're going to trade and exchange the real thing for images, meaning, meaning, meaning things that, 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 that are just reflect something, but, but that aren't even real. They're just images. Images of what? Of mortal creatures. Mortal, meaning withers, it dies, it doesn't last. Creatures, meaning they're not the creator. And so I'm gonna, they're going to trade the creator, God, who's immortal, for mortal images of creatures. And when Paul sees that, he says, that's foolish. Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, that's illogical, irrational. Like, nobody in their right mind would make that trade. It would kind of be like you going into, like, a car dealership. And this is a bad illustration that breaks down really quick. And you taking your vehicle in, and you saying, I want to trade my real vehicle in for a little toy hot wheel car and that's going to be my car that's foolish you don't trade like the real thing that that lasts sort of for a while at least for just some image of something like that doesn't make any sense and that's the picture here what Paul's describing here in regards to what we've done with God, we've exchanged him, we've traded him. We've traded the creator for for creatures, for images, for other little gods. But think about this, right? These three things, this progression here. This is exactly what we've done. 
in the culture and the country in which we lived. Suppress the truth about God. Acted like he doesn't exist. Ignore him, reject him. As a result, then we haven't honored him. We haven't given him thanks. And instead, we've exchanged him and substituted him for other things. Money, sex, politics, power, sports, the American dream, just fill in, fill in the blanks. We worship them now instead of him. As a result of all of that then, God's wrath is provoked and he burns with righteous indignation and anger toward those who've suppressed, ignored, and exchanged him for other things. That's part of the reason why we're in the mess that we're in, not the full reason. We'll see the full reason here in just a minute. But God's response here, right, makes sense. Like, I've shared this before, but, but you can tell how valuable and important something is to someone by how they respond if it's taken away from them. And so, like, if you go into my house and you steal one of my 20 ink pens on my desk, I'm not going to be very mad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay. I'm going to brush that off. It's not going to offend me or affect me very much. But if you go into my house and steal one of my kids, then I'm going to be ticked off. I'm going to be like, really, can't have one of my kids. Or, or, that's the same answer it is. What's so important to God? What's so valuable to God here that causes him to respond in wrath when, when that's taken away from him or when it's minimized or, or, or when it's taken away? What, what is that that's so valuable and important to him that when it's taken away, he responds in wrath? Do you know what the answer is? And some of y'all won't like this. It's his glory. It's his worship that God is so passionate and zealous for his glory and for his worship that anytime anybody robs him of that or anytime somebody steals that from him or minimizes that from him or gives that to another, then God's wrath is provoked and he burns with righteous indignation against them. And we've talked about this a lot before. I know like some of you, when you hear that, you think, wow, it sounds like God's an egomaniac. It sounds like he's selfish. It sounds like he's self-serving. But the reality is, like who else do you want God to worship? Like you? I hope not. I don't want God worshiping me. I want God worshiping himself. And the moment he ceases and quits worshiping himself and making his glory and his worship preeminent in his heart and life, then he ceases to be God. Because whatever he's worshiping, whatever is preeminent then, is God now. And you don't want a God like that. And I don't want a God like that. And so then when he doesn't get the glory and the worship he deserves, when people suppress the truth about him, don't honor him or give him thanks, and exchange his glory for something else, he's provoked to anger. Because he's not receiving what he ultimately deserves. And is at the core and the essence of who he is. I've quoted this before, but Matthew Barrett, he's a seminary professor at Midwestern, he wrote a great book called no one greater, I think that's the name of the book, uh, none greater, uh, he, he said this, if God is the supreme perfect being, someone than whom none greater can be conceived, 
then he is the only one in the universe who has the right to elevate himself and his own glory above all else. He himself is the object of his own love, glory, and happiness because he himself is that being which is most valuable, lovely, and worthy of adoration. Should he not value himself above all else, he would not be a righteous God. He would cease to be God. So it's in this way. This right here is is the reason for God's wrath. That God burns with passion and intense jealousy to be prized and treasured and esteemed by his creation. And when his creation suppresses the truth about him, doesn't honor him, and doesn't give him the glory that he deserves, he's provoked to wrath against against him. So that's the answer to the why question. Now comes the how question. In other words, how then, practically speaking, is God's wrath being poured out and revealed today, like in the present time? How? What What does that look like? Well, do you know what the answer is? When it comes to the revelation of God's wrath, you can see it on your hand out there. That God's wrath is being revealed as he gives people over to their sin. God's wrath is being revealed as he gives people over to their sin. That's what we see, look there in verse 24 there. The first word in verse 24 is the word therefore. Meaning in light of everything he's just said. Meaning since they suppress the truth about God, since they've dishonored God, since they haven't given thanks to God, since they've exchanged God for idols and therefore lived this ungodly and unrighteous lives, since, since they've done all that, then here's what God has done. Look what it purity to the dishonor of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever Amen. And then he says the same exact thing in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Like that right there, that's how God's wrath is revealed in the present time against those who suppress the truth about him and dishonor him and exchanged him for other gods. He reveals his wrath against them by giving them over and handing them over to their sin and their impurity and their, their dishonorable passions. And he does this as a form of judgment against them. They've rejected him. They've denied him. They've substituted him for other things. And so finally he says, all right, you don't want me. You don't get me. I'll just hand you over to whatever you want. You can have at it. Be like a parent just trying to, trying to knock some sense into their child, right? Continue to do wrong, continue to do wrong, continue to disobey, continue to drift and all that stuff. And the parent's like, okay, that, you, you want that? You want that so bad? Fine, you, you can have it. And the picture here is that that's a form of God's judgment. That's a picture of how God pours out his wrath and reveals his wrath against us. He does so by giving us what we want. By giving us the sin and the lust and dishonorable passions that we desire and ultimately long for. God reveals his wrath against us by giving those, by handing us over, giving us over to those things. And just feel the weight of that, right? Like, like think about your current sin struggle. Whatever the biggest current sin struggle in your life is right now. And imagine for a minute God just handing you over to it. Just giving, giving you over to it. 
Oh, you struggle? You, you want that? Okay, I'll give it to you. Like by his grace, if you're a Christian, he's restraining you. He's restraining you. He's keeping you. He's preserving you. He's not handing you over. He's not giving you over to it. But imagine if he did. Like, can you imagine anything more terrifying than God handing you over to your sin? It's a form of His wrath. His judgment against you. The good news, though, is, again, this this can't happen to a Christian. This can't happen to a believer. God, God doesn't do this. He doesn't reveal His wrath against those who who are believers, who are Christians, followers of His. He doesn't doesn't hand us over to our sin finally and completely. Instead, He keeps us. He he preserves us. He causes us to repent and fight against our sinful passions and impurities. But here's the scary part. That's not the case for the unbeliever. Instead, one of the ways God reveals His wrath against the unbeliever has ignored him, rejected him, exchanged him for other things. It's by handing them over to their sin. And this is one of the reasons why we're in the mess that we're in morally speaking within our country today. We're not here because of the educational system. We're not here because of the economic system. We're not here because of the political system. We're here because we've rejected God, exchanged God for other things, not honor him, not given him thanks. And he's poured out his wrath against so many who've who've rejected him like this within our country. And he just handed them over to their sin. And if you don't believe me, then like just continue reading on within this passage. And how Paul begins to describe the sin that God hands people over who have rejected him and exchanged him for other gods. Because as we continue to read on within this passage, it sounds like a pretty vivid description of the nightly news from last night. It sounds like a pretty thing that he describes. And of our rest of verse 26, we, we see that God hands people over, and you see this on your hand out there, hands people over to, to homosexual relationships. Like this is what he says in, in the rest of verse 6. Look there with me. He says, for, so he's going to describe some of these dishonorable passions that, he, that he's handed people over to. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing same, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So then what Paul's describing here are Sexual relationships between a woman and a woman and a man and a man. And both of these for Paul and God's word fall under the umbrella of dishonorable passions. And one of the reasons that he calls them dishonorable is because these relationships aren't natural. They're contrary to nature. Meaning they're contrary to God's design for for how men and women are to relate. Now men or women are to function. Like God didn't design men to have sexual relationships with men. And God didn't design women to have sexual relationships with women. And so the Bible is clear. Homosexuality, it's a sin. It's a dishonorable passion 
That's a sin in God's sight, in, in God's word. At the same time, it's not the unpardonable sin. And it's not the only sin. Instead, Jesus died on the cross to take the judgment for that sin, just like he died on the cross to take the judgment for every other sin. Because of that, then, there's grace, there's forgiveness for those who have engaged in homosexual acts, who have engaged in homosexual relationships. There's grace and forgiveness that's available in Christ for that sin. And so as I was thinking about this, even this week and studying this passage, as I think about just all the time that I've been in ministry, so I don't know, a long time, I'm old. If I had a dollar for every person within the church that I was a part of or within the college ministry I was a part of back in the day who asked to get time with me, and meet with me. And within our time together, they shared with me that they struggled with same-sex attraction. If I had a dollar for every person who confessed that to me, I wouldn't be a rich man, but I'd be able to take a pretty nice vacation. Because that number is large. And I say that just to say this. If that's you this morning, if that's, a, if that's a struggle for you this morning, then you won't be the first person that's ever shared that with me. And you won't be the first person that's ever shared that with others within our church. And our desire is to help you. Our desire is to come alongside of you. Yes, we believe what the Bible teaches, that it's a dishonorable passion. And therefore, we want to help you. We want to come alongside of you. We want to encourage and spur you on to living a life of purity and holiness in that specific area of your life. And so please, don't don't live in isolation. Don't try and deal with this by yourself. Don't try and keep silent and pull up your bootstraps. Instead, share this with your DC leader, with one of us as elders, with another member of our church, so that we can walk alongside of you and help you pursue holiness and purity in this specific area of your life. So that's not the only sinful passion, though, or impurity that that he talks about God handing people over to. Instead, secondly, he also talks about handing people over to catch-all category, be fit to acknowledge. They didn't acknowledge God. Instead, they suppressed him. They didn't honor him. They didn't thank him. They exchanged him for other gods. They didn't acknowledge him. And because of that, then look what God does. God gave them up. That's that same language there. God gave them up. He handed them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And here's all the things that ought not to be done that God just handed them over to and God gave them over to. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, adventurers of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So again, I I don't know about you, but Everything we just read there, it's a description of the the culture and the country in which we live. 
It's a description of what's going on all around us. Like homosexuality, right? It's, it's normal. It's, it's normalized. Murder. This past week I saw where a man walked up to a five-year-old and just shot him dead. Gossips. You ever watch like the, the news? Just gossip. It's hard to even know what's true. Strife. No strife going on today, right? Slander. You got social media, just slander all, all over the place. Covetousness. It's the pursuit of the American dream. Disobedient to parents. I won't comment on that one. Um, that's not prevalent at all. Uh, evil, envy, deceit, faithless, boastful, on and on. How'd we get here? Why are we here? Suppressing of God, dishonoring God, not thanking God, changing God for other things. God not receiving the worship he deserves. Provoking God to wrath. And then him finally and ultimately just giving people over to their sin. And this is the outcome. It's the country. It's the culture in which we live today. He's handed us over as an act of judgment against us. So, if that's true, let me, let me close with this. This isn't on your handout. Like, this is free. But here, here let me mention three implications. And if, if everything that we just looked at within this passage is true, then what are the implications of these truths for us as Christians within this country and culture in which we in which we live. So let me mention three and then we'll be done real quick. First implication is this. We ought to respond then with humility. Everything we just looked at should humble us. Like if you go through this passage and you're not humbled, you need to read it again and again and again and again. Like everything within this passage should, should humble us. In other words, we shouldn't respond to everything that's going on within our country and culture in which we live today and the, the moral collapse was self-righteousness. With this sense of proud self-righteousness that we're above everything. And, and look at how good we are. And that we're superior and, and better than, than the culture in which we live and everybody else around us. Instead, we ought to realize that if it wasn't for the grace of God, if it wasn't for the mercy of God, then we'd be in the same boat as everybody else. Instead, it's only because God, within a sovereign grace and mercy in Christ, that, that we're not here. And the reality of that should humble us, not make us proud and self-righteous. And perspective, again, we should respond with the proper understanding today. In other words, the reason, the, the problems that we're facing in our country today aren't ultimately solved by legislation politics, Supreme Court justices, or anything else. Like if the problems that we were facing today were political problems or educational problems or economic problems, then all those other things would work and solve them. But those aren't what the ultimate problem for why we find ourselves in the mess that we're in today. Instead, our ultimate problem is a God problem, and it's a wrath problem. We've rejected God, found other gods to worship, and so then God is pouring out his wrath by handing us over to our sin. 
And so then as a result of that, the only solution for our country isn't different legislation, a different president, better Supreme Court justices, or anything else. And so the only solution for our country is for someone to come and rescue us from God's wrath. And the good news is we know exactly who that someone is. It's Jesus. That Jesus came on this earth. He lived the perfect life we could not live. And he substituted himself on the cross to take God's wrath to take the full fury of God's wrath that we deserve for all the ways that we've suppressed the truth about him, dishonored him, not given him thanks, and exchanged him for other gods. Jesus took God's wrath in our place on the cross. But here's the kicker. That's not true for everybody. It's only true for those who have trusted in Jesus and placed their faith in Jesus as their one and only hope for being rescued from the wrath of God that they deserve for their sins. Everybody else is either presently receiving God's wrath by being handed over and given over to their sin, or will ultimately receive God's wrath on the day of judgment. So if that's, if that's you this morning, if you're here this morning, if you're not a Christian, like your only hope is to place your faith in, in Christ as your substitute as the only one who's taken God's wrath and can rescue God's wrath from for you. Third and finally then, we should respond, by, for, respond to these truths by sharing the hope of the gospel, by sharing the hope of the gospel with others. I don't know about you, but when I think about God's wrath this way, not just as something in the future, but something that's like being poured out now, revealed now, that gives me a greater urgency for evangelism. Like when I think about it back then, I, later it's like, oh, there's still time. When I think about that now, there's just a sense of urgency. There's just a sense of greater urgency to share and to let people know. Like, you don't have to be handed over. You don't have to live a life of misery under the wrath of God, giving over to the wrath of God. You don't, it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, I've got the answer. I've got the hope. I've got the solution for how you can be rescued from God's wrath and judgment that you're under and that you deserve and that you don't even know that you're under. I've got it. And it's found in the gospel. It's found in, it's found in Jesus. And so, I, man, it's so easy Again, to get sidetracked in the midst of social media and news and just the polarization of all that's going on all around us and how everybody is an expert and a scholar on how to fix things and how to get things back to where they need to be and all that stuff. Like, oh, we are, this is why we are where we are. And this is the only way to fix it. The good news is we know. And so let's, let's get busy. Let's make sure that we don't get caught up in all this other stuff. We remember where our ultimate hope really lies and what the ultimate solution really is and what the ultimate problem really is. This very second, this very moment, even today that we're going to interact with, that God has handed over. Uh, they, they can be rescued. Not by a new economic system or a new politician, but by Jesus. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you that you speak into where we are, into where we live, that your word is not ancient and old-fashioned and not relevant and doesn't apply anymore. But just in reading through this passage this morning and this week, it's like you're writing a fitting description of the country and the culture in which we live. And so God, we don't want to leave here this morning pointing fingers at how bad things are around us. Because we know, Lord, if it wasn't for your grace and mercy, we'd be there ourselves. So God, let us leave this passage just boasting in Jesus, being thankful for Jesus, not suppressing the truth about God, but instead honoring Him and giving thanks because You've redeemed us and rescued us from what we ultimately deserve. So God, I pray that we would not keep that hope to ourselves, but I pray that You would help us to be compelled to be able to share that, to be able to speak that into the current cultural moment in which we find ourselves in the midst of pandemics and everything else. Lord, that you would help us to share the hope of the gospel, the one and only one who can rescue anyone from the wrath of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name.